Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. A judge, like any human being, is, is going to treat a defendant who testifies and lies uh, more harshly than one who doesn't. Welcome back to The Trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. I am your host, Kelly O'Grady, from over at Fox Business. So we're essentially one week out from SBS guilty verdict, just under a week. And now a lot of the questions are turning to what comes next, right? How many years is he going to get? Will the SDNY U.S. Attorney's Office go through with a potential March trial? Will his defense counsel file an appeal? And when might that be coming down the line? How in parallel, we're also hearing uh, the separate bankruptcy process is humming along. And some news came out today, actually, there's a number of bidders to buy and reboot the fallen exchange FTX. That's an interesting move, given the technology platform itself was very sound, uh, though that certainly faces significant challenges from a PR perspective, to be sure. But today we're going to focus on what comes next for Sam Bankman-Fried. So here to break it all down is Mark Litt. He is a former prosecutor in the SDNY U.S. Attorney's Office, a storied defense attorney, uh, and he was even uh, the leader of the team that took down Bernie Madoff. So welcome, Mark. We're excited to talk to you today. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so I just kind of want to start from your experience on the Madoff trial. You know, you, you built this case against Bernie Madoff. We know the prosecution for Sam Bankman-Fried's case was working uh, for months, nearly a year. Walk me through how that process would have gone and and kind of, you know, how, how maybe much more complicated the Bernie Madoff trial might have been than SBF's. First of all, as you know, uh, Bernie Madoff pled guilty. Uh, he did not go to trial. There were a number of other people charged. Some were cooperators. Five wound up going to trial later. But, you know, the process is one of um, mainly talking to witnesses, uh, getting their cooperation, uh, vetting them uh, to make sure that they can stand up to cross-examination, that they are accepting responsibility for what for their role in what is being investigated, to make sure that they're credible uh, and that what they have to say is corroborated both by other witnesses and by the documentary evidence uh, that you have. Um, and that, that's how a case gets put together. Uh, in terms of differences between the two. I mean, look, the Madoff uh, fraud took place over decades, 30 to 40 years. So there were a lot more records to go through. There was a lot more history. <laughs> there were a lot more people to talk to. But uh, in most ways, I would say that the putting together of a, of a standard white collar case is pretty simple. It's pretty similar. Mm. So you know, one of the things that I think a lot of folks were 
were surprised about, uh, were certainly hoping for to happen, was the fact that Sam Bankman-Fried testified. Uh, you know, we had we had heard weeks and weeks of witness testimony from his inner circle that had pled guilty to fraud and other charges. Uh, and then he took the stand. So as a, a former prosecutor, I'll, I'll ask you to put on, on that hat first, and then I'll ask you about the defense side. How big was that for the case, do you think? I mean, getting the chance to cross-examine him for multiple days. Well, I think prosecutors uh, dream about that opportunity. Um, it's relatively rare that defendants testify. Um, and you have to, as a prosecutor, you have to be prepared uh, from, the, from the outset to cross-examine the defendant should he or she decide to testify. I think prosecutors like the opportunity um, in a case like this where they have so much material to work with, including the many hours of public statements uh, that Bankman-Fried had made prior to trial. Um, they had a lot of grist for the cross-examination mill. So I think they were licking their chops yeah, that, that became evident when the uh, assistant U.S. attorney, Daniel Sassoon, was cross-examining him. It was uh, very, very intense, certainly a, a huge switch from his performance when he was getting those friendly questions that were likely rehearsed from his own counsel. And so now, flip side, I'd love for you to put on you know, your defense hat. Do you think it was a smart idea for him to take the stand? Was that his only option? Look, no defendant... Uh, no, no rational defendant takes the stand if they think they're ahead. By the time they make that decision, they've seen the government's case. They've been able to watch the judge's reaction, the juror's reaction. They've uh, seen what they could do on cross-examination with the cooperators uh, and the like. And if a defendant is ahead, certainly the advice from any experienced uh, white collar defense counsel would be do not testify <laughs> because <laughs> only bad thing if you're ahead put your head down and let's move to closings uh, don't don't create any opportunities for things to go wrong if you're behind then you have to consider and weigh the risks and benefits of testifying the potential benefit is you know if you're going for a hung jury you know maybe you can convince one juror by force of personality, by force of the facts that you intend to convey, maybe you can switch a juror's mind. Not that you know what the jury is, is thinking, but you do have a sense of how the case has gone in for the government watching over the course of a couple of weeks. Um, so you, need, you know that you need to probably make a dent and change some minds. So you can either, you know, your, your goal is to change one mind and get a hung jury and make the government do it all over again. Or if you're extremely skilled, lucky, or have a great story to tell, um, uh, convince all 12 that you're innocent and, and get, a, get a not guilty verdict. I think here, you know, the, the government had a mountain of evidence. They had at least three cooperators who cross-corroborated each other and cross-corroborated the, the documentary evidence. And it's kind of a scenario, you know, people say it's a Hail Mary. Well, you know, a Hail Mary is not necessarily an illogical uh, play to run in a football game, and it's similarly not necessarily illogical 
to do in a, in a criminal trial. All that said, you have to weigh what the risks are as well. Uh, the risk of testifying, of course, is, well, maybe, maybe you're misreading the jury. You think you're behind, but actually you're ahead. Uh, or uh, you're opening yourself up to, as in this case, you know, hours of cross-examination. And they knew that they were doing that. Um, you are opening up yourself to adverse credibility findings, judgments, both by the jury. Um, the jury could dislike the defendant at some sort of personal level, you know, have an adverse reaction, uh, which could lead to a very uh, quick verdict, as what as is what happened here. And you have a sentencing risk as well, which is uh, under the sentencing, first of all, under the sentencing guidelines, your guideline sentence is higher if you are found by the judge to have been not credible, uh, to have lied in your testimony. Mm -hmm. uh, and notwithstanding the guidelines, which are just advisory, a judge, like any human being, is, is going to treat a defendant who testifies and lies. Uh, more harshly than one who doesn't. So you have a, a sentencing risk as well. But if you're looking at a very long sentence, the marginal, you know, the, mar the, the risk at the margin of how much longer your sentence could be for that, uh, you might view that to be a price that you're willing to pay for the potential marginal benefit of hanging the jury or perhaps convincing all of them that you're innocent. Sure. And, and that's that's sort of where that that Hail Mary comes in, because, you know, I mean, listening to the the prosecution making their case for a number of weeks, it was it was impressive. You know, you, you had all of these witnesses. I, I, I wouldn't say that they were necessarily folks that connected with the jury, but what they were saying was pretty damning. And I, I would imagine that hearing all of that, there was almost a, a yen for Sam Bankman fried to tell his story, given how willing he was to tell his story for months and months and months uh, before he got indicted and, and even after he got indicted. But you mentioned that the verdict came in so quickly. I was pretty shocked. <laughs> it was four hours and we, we had to get up and then report out live for the rest of the night. Have you ever seen something in a case this high profile come back so quickly? I also covered the Elizabeth Holmes case and you know, we were deliberating, or the jury rather, was deliberating for seven days across the winter holidays and into the new year. Um, so I'm just curious, based on your experience, was this something that you've seen before? Were you shocked by how quickly it came back? Uh, I wasn't. I mean, I was asked earlier in the day what, what to expect. And I said, well, the minimum time for a jury in a, to, to come back in this kind of case like this is probably three to four hours. That would be... wow." Really quick, that's about the minimum it would take to get organized, go through seven counts uh, sufficiently um, to, you know, do your job. Um, I mean, I think the speed was a little bit the product of the, the timing and the schedule. Sure. Um, I think if the jury had sat on Friday, uh, I wouldn't have been surprised if they had taken longer say through lunch on friday juries like to get juries like to eat lunch to get together um, they rarely report out a verdict in the morning before lunch um, they also don't like to have things hanging over their head 
for a weekend if they don't have mm -hmm. to, which is why part of the reason why Judge Kaplan, I think, uh, gave them the opportunity to go longer on Thursday night. I think juries do like to talk to each other. I mean, you have to, about what they've just witnessed. I mean, if they follow uh, the, the judge's instructions, they've just sat through a two or three week trial uh, and not been able to talk about anything that they've seen. They talk about the weather, they talk about family, they talk about lunch, they talk about whatever, but they're not supposed to be uh, deliberating yet. And so people right. have things they, they want to get out, out of their head and off their chest about what they've just witnessed. So, you know, in an ordinary case like, like this, um, had they sat on Friday, it wouldn't have at all surprised me if, even if they went late on Thursday, if they, it hung over to the afternoon. But given, again, given the constraints of timing, I, I suspect they didn't want this hanging over their heads over the weekend. They probably took a quick preliminary poll and saw where people were generally on the matter, um, must have seen a pretty quick consensus and then went through um, the various counts, you know, more carefully to make sure the elements uh, were met and they ticked all the boxes and then could report out the verdict and, and not have to think about it anymore over the weekend. This is Jimmy Fallon inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Well, that's really good context that that sort of the minimum would have been for this type of case three to four hours. And that's right around where it turned out. And to your point, the, the fact that Judge Kaplan did allow them the opportunity to deliberate later, uh, got them car service, got them dinner, pizza. Um, I did find it a little bit interesting that the verdict came out right after dinner. <laughs> I was wondering, I was like, were you guys just staying around for dinner? Um, but I, I'm sure that they, they deliberated while they were they were eating the pizza. But, you know, I kind of want to turn to to what comes next, because right now there's, of course, you know, the holidays are coming up, then we're going to be in the new year. And there's there's sort of two big things set for March of next year. One is his sentencing hearing on March 28th. And then one is the question mark of the March trial. And we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but just for, for context, for listeners, again, uh, when Sam Bankman-Fried was indicted uh, in the Bahamas, he was extradited back to the United States. He had initially been charged with eight counts of uh, fraud and conspiracy and money laundering, one of which they dropped for this current trial. But there were a number of superseding indictments and it ultimately came to a decision of, well, based on the Bahamian extradition treaty, that was not the proper course. And so the prosecution decided, okay, we'll sever those charges. Um, you know, the judge agreed with everything and we will put them forth for a March trial. So we're, we're looking at roughly four to five charges depending on what the indictment ultimately comes down to be. But I wanted to get your sense, Mark, um, What's what's the, the kind of cost-benefit analysis of going forth with a March trial? Uh, they have to give the indication of whether they're going to do that by, I believe, early February in order to, to give everyone time to prepare. But what would be going through your mind after having such a major win 
coming out of this, you know, a, a verdict in mere hours? Yeah, well, I think it's an interesting question on, on both, for both sides, potentially. The government invested a lot of resources in this case, went to trial, got a verdict, and the judge has 110, uh, 100 plus years of potential sentence to, to meet out. So the judge has plenty of uh, flexibility to mm -hmm. give a sentence that's appropriate in the case and sends the kind of messages that the, the government wants to send. Um, the other thing about sentencing is judges sentence not based not only on conduct for which a defendant was convicted, but they can also sentence based on uncharged conduct that's relevant and even acquitted conduct. So if he had been acquitted of uh, all but one of the charges, he could be sentenced for the acquitted conduct as well. So anything that's oh, relevant, I wasn't aware anything that. that's relevant to the case um, comes into play uh, at sentencing. Now, a lot of the evidence about, for example, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act charges came in at this trial. Mm -hmm. um, the judge saw that evidence. Uh, the standard uh, at sentencing is a preponderance, not beyond a reasonable doubt. To convince somebody to convict somebody of a crime, you have to prove to a unanimous jury of their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It's the highest uh, level of proof in our legal system. Uh, to take something into account at sentencing, the government must only prove that fact by a preponderance of the evidence, um, just that it's more likely than not. I always think of it as a, a coin flip plus, you know, a feather, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> smallest amount more than thinking it's, it's heads uh, and, and that's enough, you know, 50.0001%. So the judge can take, uh, for example, the FCPA evidence into account in sentencing uh, Bankman Freed already. So why does there need to be a trial? So from the, from the government's perspective, the question is, are we confident enough that the, that the, the judge has the flexibility uh, and inclination to do uh, what's right in this case based on the record that's developed? And from a, you know, a resource, you know, do we want to spend more time uh, going after this one individual when, when what is the effect going to be at the margin? I mean, even if you get the conviction and even if he gets acquitted at that trial, as long as the judge is satisfied to a preponderance that those things happened, uh, he can fashion a sentence that takes that into account. So what's what's the point? Um, I think that's that's how the government, you know, the government may, on the other hand, the government may say, well, it's separate crime, separate charges. We have to send a message that foreign corrupt, you know, corrupt practices is is a priority, and we have to um, see it through to the end. Um, I tend to think at the end of the day, the government would not spend more resources uh, to try another case when it will have little, if any, impact on sentencing. And they've already achieved what they've, what they've wanted to achieve. The thing I've been sort of thinking about is from Bankman Freed's perspective, could he plead guilty to uh, one or more of the remaining charges without damaging his appeal of his criminal mm. conviction 
and get some credit with the judge who is going to feel negatively about him given his testimony that the jury rejected and i suspect judge kaplan rejected as well uh and get some of the credit back for having testified and been found uh to have committed perjury by accepting responsibility for something else and would the government um be interested in that i guess is another question even if bankman fried is interested in that uh if the government doesn't want to give him that opportunity they can just um, drop the case and not not proceed um so it's an interesting question i'm not i'm not sure how that all washes out i think if i had to if i had to bet i would say the government would not spend more resources because the marginal uh benefit isn't isn't worth it from their perspective yeah it's an interesting uh question that you raise about uh the his potential for pleading guilty because i i was kind of thinking about it well if the government decides to go through with the case that's going to mean that everything is again so fresh in judge kaplan's mind the case is supposed to start march 11th his sentencing is march 28th it's almost like dragging up you know, old things right before potentially even having some of the same witnesses. Uh, who knows if Bankman Freed would testify again, based on what I saw, probably not the best idea, but hey, you never know. Um, but yeah, to your point that he could potentially try and, and curry some, some favor, show the possibility for rehabilitation, which of course is one of the, the factors that goes into sentencing. So yeah, that's it's a really interesting question to ponder. You, you brought up the appeal. Uh, how do you think that if he were to plead guilty, might that impact his ability to go forward with an appeal? It really depends on the specifics of the charges to which he pleads guilty. If if mm. if all that's left is the FC, if the FCPA, that's completely. Although the evidence came in at trial, he wasn't convicted of that. You know, I'm not sure what if he testified about whether he was asked anything about the fcpa charges i don't think so i don't think that came up yeah i didn't think he was so um it wouldn't you know expose him to perjury if you know if for example he had testified and denied you know the conduct that was that's the basis of the fcpa charges it would be tough for him to turn around and plead guilty to that because he'd be admitting perjury essentially mm, right. the trial but if the record is silent on charges and if they if they are sufficiently discreet from what he was convicted of he could plead guilty he could even plead guilty straight up without any kind of deal he could walk into court and say i want to plead guilty um without having much of any as a technical matter any effect on his appeal hmm. Uh, yeah, just for some context for listeners, the uh, the FCPA charge that Mark is referencing, so Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, in the trial, it came up, uh, his ex-girlfriend and former CEO of Alameda Research, Caroline Ellison, was alleging that FTX, at the request of Sam Bankman-Fried, bribed 
a Chinese uh, official in order to unfreeze some funds uh, in crypto. And that was, for, for folks that were following along, that was when the Thai prostitutes and all of that hoopla came into, into testimony. Um, but one of the charges that, that came on the superseding indictment after he was extradited from the Bahamas was a violation of the FCPA. Uh, Mark, I, I just wanted to get uh, one last question for you. So we've been talking a lot about sentencing and the different factors that the judge would consider going into that. You mentioned he's got up to 110 years to play with, a lot of flexibility. I've been looking at different sentences uh, for similar but certainly different crimes. You know, Bernie Madoff uh, was sentenced to, I believe it was 150 years, uh, but he was 70 years old at the time. Elizabeth Holmes, also fraud, uh, was sentenced to 11. She was facing 80, younger, has, has uh, had multiple children at the time when she went to prison. What do you think throwing the book at him in this case, if you want to send a message, since this is the first big crypto trial, could be? I mean, are, are we looking at 110 years for someone who's 31? Uh, or, or is it going to be something far lower, more in maybe the, the 20 to 25 range? Look, it's very hard to predict. Every sentencing is, and it's meant to be individualized. Mm -hmm. It's also very judge dependent. I would say, you know, from my perspective, this isn't a crypto case. It's never been a crypto case for me. It's been a plain vanilla securities fraud case, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, promises made, promises broken. It just so happened to be in a crypto wrapper, if you will. <laughs> um, it, it could be about anything. It could be about real estate. It could be about uh, promissory notes, or it could be in, happen on a, on a crypto platform. But it's basically telling investors you're going to do one thing with their, mon with their money and you do something else with it. Um, or you say one thing to give comfort for investors to invest and the things you say are materially false. So I don't buy into the sort of sending a message about crypto, uh, that sort of theory. My guess, and it's a guess, is that he will get a lengthy sentence, probably measured in decades. Uh, mm -hmm. If I had to bet, it's more in the 20 to 30 year kind of range. But uh, look, Judge Kaplan is very, A, he's very experienced. Um, he's seen a lot of criminal defendants. He also had the unique opportunity to watch Bankman Fried testify mm, and has right. uh, his own feelings about that. Um, and so he's, he's, he's very, and he, he has an obligation to not only do what is right in this case, given all the characteristics of Bankman Freed himself as, a, as an individual, but also to make sure it fits in with all the other sentences that are given in the Southern District of New York for similar cases and, and across the country. I mean, that's what the guidelines are supposed to help with a bit. So to me, my gut feeling weighing what I know about all of those factors, which is hardly everything, uh, again, <laughs> I would I come out sort of in the 20 to 30 year range. Uh, but I don't, I, I can't rule out the possibility that um, he could get the max, but I, I just mm. don't think so. Well, we won't hold you to 20 to 30, but we appreciate the context. And, and it's interesting that you 
have framed it. A lot of folks throughout this this uh, trial that I've been talking to have said something similar that fraud is fraud. But when it's come to sentencing, I'm hearing, oh, you know, this is the first big crypto case. He could throw the book at him. But I, I do think that that's an a important context that you bring that this type of case, it, it is vanilla fraud, right? Lying to customers, lying to investors, doing it could have been cash or crypto. Um, but it does need to fit within that broader sentencing pattern of the Southern District of New York and, and perhaps you know, future trials that are gonna come that are more focused on the inner workings of the crypto industry might, might bring that to light. Um, Mark, yeah. thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your insights and uh, for sharing your perspective today. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, that does it for us, folks. Uh, thanks for listening and following along on the trial. Make sure to subscribe for future episodes as we continue to follow what this all means for Sam Bankman-Fried and the crypto industry as a whole. That's all for now. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.